Pink Flamingo's Haunted UK podcast is recorded and presented in stereo. Listening to it through an environment such as headphones is highly recommended. Welcome to Pink Flamingo's Haunted UK podcast. is episode two of Pink Flamingo's Haunted UK podcast. And today, we'll be taking a journey through the haunted history of Borley Rectory. As with the previous episode, let's take a brief dive into the history of the house and its surrounding area. The rectory was a large Gothic-style house built in 1862 in the village of Borley, The village is located in rural Essex, not far from the border of Suffolk, and is near the River Stour. The house was built by the Reverend Henry Dawson Ellis Bull, on the same site as the previous rectory, which was completely destroyed by fire in 1841. The new house was built to a larger scale to accommodate the Bull family's 14 children. The immediate area of the rectory also housed the church, which was thought to date as far back as the 12th century. The foundation remains of Borley Hall, as well as a few farm buildings. The story of a Benedictine monastery built in 1362 was home to a legend regarding a monk and a nun from a nearby convent who had begun an affair. This was quickly discovered and the monk was executed, but the nun's fate was far worse. She was bricked up alive inside the walls of the convent. This story turned out to be allegedly false, apparently made up by the rector's children. But it's these fabrications that have made the legend of Borley Rectory and its paranormal happenings a topic of intense debate. So now that we're a little more familiar with the house, its history and its location, let's dive into the stories. As soon as the construction of the new house was complete, the Reverend Bull moved his family in in 1863. Paranormal activity began occurring almost immediately after this. The family, as well as local residents who visited the house, would report hearing disembodied footsteps from various locations, rapping and crashing sounds, and even the sound of running water. House bells would operate and ring when no one was present, and this, apparently, still occurred even after the bell's wires had been cut. This poltergeist activity was mainly concentrated around Ethel, one of the bull's youngest daughters. She was allegedly at the epicentre of a spirit who would quite often open and close her bedroom door, would sometimes physically slap her across the face, and would go on to terrorise one of the children's nursemaids, Elizabeth Byford. Elizabeth was so terrified by events such as loud footsteps outside her bedroom door at night that she left after only two weeks. In 1892, 
the Reverend Henry Dawson Ellis Ball died, leaving his son, also named Henry, to take over the rectory. Regardless of the strange goings-on at the house, the Ball family were adamant that they weren't going to be driven out. Now going back to the story of the nun bricked up inside the convent walls, a ghostly nun was seen on a number of occasions by many different witnesses. Was there in fact some truth in the original story? Or was this ghost completely unrelated to the legend of the nun and the monk, whose affair spelled the grisly deaths of both parties? One sighting took place in 1900, and was witnessed by both Ethel and her sister Frida. They had both returned home from a summer party when they spotted what looked like the figure of a nun moving through the trees near the house. They were both so petrified that they ran into the house to get their older sister Elsie. They frantically relayed the story to her of what had just happened, begging her to go out and take a look. The three of them ventured back outside and, sure enough, the nun was still there. Elsie then took it upon herself to try and approach the figure and make contact. But as Elsie got almost close enough to touch the nun, it disappeared right in front of her. This apparition made another appearance in the same year, but this time for the mother of the girls. She spotted the nun outside the house roaming around the garden. It was also seen by handyman Fred Cartwright, who had been hired by the family to see to some jobs that needed doing around the property. Fred saw this ghostly figure four times over a number of days while he was working, but at first never thought anything of it, as the nun looked so real. It wasn't until the fourth and final sighting happened that he got the fright of his life, as he watched her simply melt away and disappear. Henry, who had taken over the running of the rectory after his father's death, didn't get away without his fair share of strange experiences. One in particular happened on a day when he was outside in the garden with his dog. He was wandering around the orchard when he noticed a pair of legs by some trees. The body of whoever it was was obstructed by the branches and leaves, but as Henry got closer, the figure moved away from the cover of the trees and, to Henry's horror, the figure was headless. He also witnessed the amazing ghostly apparition of a horse-drawn carriage which was being ridden by a headless coachman. Henry encountered this sight a number of times, but the strange thing he experienced was that when he saw the carriage and coachman, the scene was silent. Whenever he heard the sound of the carriage, thundering up the pathway to the house, he never saw it. The second Reverend Henry Bull sadly passed away in 1927 and the family moved away. Borley Rectory lay vacant for around a year, but in October 1928, a new reverend, Guy Eric Smith, and his wife Mabel moved into the house. Things went well as they began to settle in, but this was only for a short time. Whilst cleaning out a cupboard, Mabel found a package hidden away. Upon closer inspection, she was totally stunned to find a human skull inside the package, it turned out to be the skull of a young woman, but her identity was never confirmed. The Reverend and his wife decided to bury the skull in one of the local churchyards, but this only seemed to intensify the paranormal events. Poltergeist activity increased with incidents including stones and vases being thrown, lights being switched on and off, and the servants' bells ringing again. 
even when they were disconnected. Ghostly lights seemed to appear at windows, and it wasn't long before the sounds of footsteps began to manifest themselves all over the house. The last straw came when Mabel claimed that she had seen the phantom horse-drawn carriage near the house. The couple decided that they needed help, so they contacted the Daily Mirror newspaper in the hope that they would be put in touch with the Society for Psychical Research. The Society had resources that, if the case seemed legitimate and of scientific value to them, could be assigned to perform investigations and present their findings. The newspaper arranged for a reporter to visit the house and interview the Reverend and his wife. He then wrote a number of detailed articles which chronicled the mysteries which plagued the rectory. These articles sparked the interest of the renowned ghost hunter and paranormal investigator, Harry Price. The Daily Mirror arranged for Harry to visit the family in June of 1929, but by then, the nerves of both Reverend Smith and Mabel had worn incredibly thin. New types of phenomena began to occur upon Harry Price's arrival, such as spirit messages which would be tapped out on the frame of a mirror. These phenomena would stop immediately after Price left the premises, which would soon cast doubt over their validity from Reverend Smith, but especially from Mabel. They both apparently knew of Harry Price's expert abilities as a magician and because of this, fakery could easily be implemented. More loud ghostly footsteps would continue to be heard around the house, but the final straw came when, in the blue room, both Reverend Smith and Mabel heard whispering voices that crescendoed into a loud, moaning voice that exclaimed, Don't! Carlos! Don't! The couple left the house shortly after, never to return. They had lasted barely a year before the Borley Rectory had driven them out. The parish now seemed to be in a situation which was completely unforeseen. Finding a reverend to take over duties was the easy part. Getting them to move into the house turned out to be almost impossible. The rectory again stood empty for another year, and Harry Price was keeping his ear to the ground and waiting for his opportunity. In October 1930, the Reverend Lionel Foister, along with his much younger wife Marianne, and their adopted daughter Adelaide, were persuaded to take over the parish position and the rectory by members of the Bull family who'd built the property years before. Lionel Foister was a first cousin of the Bull family, and they felt he had what was needed to try to make the position work. As with others before them, not long after they had moved in, the activity started again. Paranormal events began to increase by a huge amount at this stage, as well as them becoming more violent. Various items, including rocks, bottles, glasses, cutlery and ornaments would be regularly thrown across the rooms by an unseen force. Windows inexplicably shattered. Doors would mysteriously lock themselves, trapping family members or even visitors inside rooms. Furniture seemed to move on a regular basis, as well as objects disappearing from one room, only to reappear in another one. All the regular haunts were also returning. The voices, the ringing bells, the footsteps. Parallels also need to be drawn here to one of the youngest daughters of the Bull family. If you remember earlier on in this episode, Ethel Bull seemed to be the target of a poltergeist phenomenon. This time, however, Marion Foister was the target, and whatever the poltergeist was, 
it wasn't going to hold back. Activity started off mildly at first for Marianne, with her complaining of being pushed, poked or prodded when she was either completely alone or in a room with company who were nowhere near her. The same types of objects that were mentioned earlier that were being thrown across rooms were now being thrown directly at Marianne, often striking her and causing physical injuries. One attack in particular caused Marianne multiple cuts to her face, as well as a black eye, when an item was thrown at her by this unseen menace. Events were pushed up a few notches even further, when one night, Marianne woke up for no apparent reason. As she was trying to clear her head and adjust herself to the darkness, she was attacked by something that pulled her from the bed and proceeded to try and suffocate her with the mattress. Strange cryptic messages then began to appear on walls, and then another attack by the poltergeist managed to pin her to the floor. Seeing his wife completely terrified and exhausted, her husband, the Reverend Foister, decided to take it upon himself to perform an exorcism. This didn't help matters at all, and even as the exorcism was being performed, the entity managed to pelt the Reverend with stones. Paranormal researchers were, and still are, divided on these particular events. Many feel that it was, in fact, Marianne herself who was channeling the poltergeist's energy. Others, however, suspected that Marianne was the conspirator who was responsible for an elaborate series of fake paranormal events. Whichever side of the fence you come down on, what cannot be denied was that the Foisters had lasted just five years before deciding that they couldn't live in the house any longer. Lionel and Marianne Foister documented all of their paranormal happenings in a diary, and this made its way back to Harry Price. So, to give you some idea of who Harry Price was, let's delve a little into his history and also what made him so interested in the paranormal. Harry Price was born in London on the 17th of January, 1881. In his mid-teenage years, he founded the Cult and Dramatic Society and began to write plays, including one which he claimed was based on poltergeist experiences which he had encountered firsthand at a manor house in Shropshire. He developed a love for archaeology and was an avid coin collector, as well as a proponent of finding clean and genuine antiquities for the explicit purpose of their preservation. Harry was also a very gifted magician and conjurer, and it was these skills that he would come to rely on to help him debunk many paranormal cases. His experiences and investigations led him to become very good friends with other notable skeptics, magicians and debunkers, such as the great Harry Houdini. Price joined the Society for Psychical Research in 1922 and, because of his knowledge of magic, conjuring and mentalism, he quickly began exposing fraudulent psychic mediums. He also put his name and stamp of approval to a number of mediums who he felt displayed genuine psychic ability. But it was the phenomena of ghosts, poltergeists and haunted houses that would make him famous. After Lionel and Marianne Foister had moved out of Borley Rectory in 1935, the building stayed vacant for almost two years. During this time, Harry Price was behind the scenes, diligently working away to secure a 12-month lease on the house with its owners, the group known as Queen Anne's Bounty, to enable him and a team of investigators to live in the property. 
He was also using this time to assemble the best equipment of the age in readiness for if, or when, he would be able to begin his residency. In 1937, Harry Price finally moved into Borley Rectory to begin what would become his most famous series of investigations. Harry, along with around a group of 48 volunteers, would take it in turns to stay at the house, conduct experiments, and to document absolutely every single detail that would take place. Apart from the usual incidents, such as disembodied footsteps, the servant bells ringing, items moving of their own accord, the majority of the documented events took place around seances which were led by medium Helen Glanville. These seances allegedly proved to be highly successful, with the medium making contact with a variety of spirits including a woman named Marie Laia. Marie came through with the story that she was the spirit which was desperately trying to reach out to Marion Foister. Marie claimed to have been the nun who had travelled from her convent in France to marry a rich Englishman by the name of Henry Waldegrave. After the marriage, Marie claimed that her husband had murdered her and dumped her body in the cellar of the old rectory where she'd been left to rot. Another spirit which Helen made contact with was a male who admitted to being a much more sinister character. This spirit warned the people attending the seance that he would burn the rectory to the ground and that in the remaining ashes the burned corpse of a body would be found. More poltergeist activity would follow these seances, with events taking place such as notable cold spots and even the amazing case of footprints in snow leading to the house which didn't appear to be human. The apparition of the nun also continued to make appearances throughout the whole time that Harry Price and his investigative team were present. After his 12-month lease was up, Harry Price rounded up all of his equipment and his team and left. He would continue to visit Borley Rectory from time to time, but his immediate focus would be to make sense of all the data and incidents that had happened and to present all of this in the form of a book. It turned out that two books would be written, which were called The Most Haunted House in England in 1940 and The End of Borley Rectory in 1946. In 1939, the new owner of Borley Rectory moved in. Captain W. H. Gregson was an architect by trade and, after learning about the house's haunted reputation, he planned on opening the property to the general public and to ghost hunters as a somewhat macabre tourist attraction. This didn't go to plan. Whilst unpacking boxes of his belongings, he accidentally knocked over an oil lamp, starting a fire which severely damaged the house. Could the premonition of the male spirit which had been contacted by medium Helen Glanville finally come to pass? Even as the flames spread through the house, one witness claimed that they had seen the figure of the nun looking out of the window of the blue room. Captain Gregson understandably put in a claim with his insurance company to cover the costs of repairs to the burned-out shell. But after an investigation, they concluded that, in their opinion, the fire was most likely started deliberately. Quite why Captain Gregson would purchase the property only to set fire to it as part of an insurance scam remains a mystery. But this is what the insurance company was standing by and they refused to pay out. With the rectory now a burned out ruin, Harry Price once again returned and conducted a dig in the cellar 
to try and find any evidence of a body which was allegedly the remains of the nun who had been murdered and left down there. After an extensive search, he found what appeared to be a few bones from an unidentified female. Harry requested that the bones be given a Christian burial in the Borley churchyard, but the church refused his request, upon the grounds that they didn't believe the bones to be human. They felt that this was a fabrication, a further attempt to keep the legend of the haunted house rolling on. The church insisted that the bones were most likely that of an animal such as a pig. Even after all of this had happened, the paranormal events continued to take place. Army officers in the Second World War who were using the site reported having stones thrown at them and also experienced deep feelings of unease and dread whenever they were near the house. Not even the ruin of the house being fully demolished in 1944 could put a stop to the incidents continuing to occur. In the 1960s, a paranormal investigative team were witness to battery torches and even car headlights draining and failing with no explanation. Fast forward to the year 2000 and a TV crew who were filming at the site reported all sorts of strange activity such as doors creaking that didn't even exist anymore and an audible deep sigh from a disembodied source. ITV show Strange But True, hosted by Michael Aspel, aired an episode in November 1994 which briefly went over the events at the rectory. As part of the episode, audio of a strange banging noise inside Borley Church was recorded and played. As can be expected in a case of this size, sources have come forward to debunk events. Reports have surfaced of Lionel and Marion Foister faking a large portion of the incidents in their time at the house in the hope that they would bring in much needed income to a family that was already struggling financially. Harry Price being accused after his death in 1948 by the Society of Psychical Research of orchestrating a huge web of fake occurrences to enhance his credibility and reputation. Books have also been written by authors who were allegedly there at the time of the Bull family's attendance, stating that they would dress up in dark cloaks and roam the grounds of the house to give the impression of an ominous spectre. But can all of this simply be lies and fakery? Can every single event that happened over the course of over 100 years be explained away as a fabrication? One thing is certain, we will still be talking about and debating the authenticity of the haunting of Borley Rectory for the next 100 years and hopefully way beyond. After Harry Price's death, his widow Constance began to donate his entire library of case reports, publication drafts, press cuttings and photographs to the University of London. It took from 1976 to 1978 to catalogue and archive all of his material, including his extensive collection of books on the subjects of magic and conjuring. The entire collection is known as the Harry Price Library of Magical Literature, and has 13,000 items within it. Surely, as a man who dedicated so much of his life to studying these strange phenomena, he couldn't have fabricated everything. Could he? Borley Rectory remains to this day to be an enigma, a puzzle which has confounded and baffled both skeptics and believers alike. 
a house that no longer exists in this little village in Essex, England, continues to attract tourists, ghost hunters, paranormal investigators and psychics to its crumbling foundation. So if you find yourselves in the area of Borley, why not go and pay this legendary location a visit? You never know. The next person who has an experience there could be you. Well, we've come to the end of the second episode of Pink Flamingo's Haunted UK podcast. But before I go, I'd just like to make a few announcements. First off, thank you to all of you who have listened. And if you've enjoyed the show, then please leave a five-star review. This will help the show tremendously. You can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Pocket Casts, and Radio Public. Secondly, merchandise will soon be available for both the podcast and the studio in the shape of t-shirts, hoodies, and coasters, supplied by CDS Print and Design. A big shout-out to Colin and Debbie at CDS Print and Design for their excellent quality and service. For many more products, including canvas prints, full-colour stickers, signs, banners, and much more, get in touch with them via Instagram, Facebook, or email at cdsprintanddesign at gmail.com. Thirdly, I'd like to give a shout-out to a few podcasts which, if you're struggling to find interesting material to listen to, these will definitely quench your thirst. Wherever you download your podcasts from, try searching for the following. Astonishing Legends The Strange Sessions Haunted Housewives The Mystery of Life Podcast The Salty Speculation Podcast Killing, Missing, Hidden and from the Parcast Network Unexplained Mysteries, Conspiracy Theories Gone and Extraterrestrial Next, if you've had an experience or sighting whilst visiting the site of Borley Rectory or anywhere else in the world, then please email the show at hauntedukpodcast at hotmail.com. That's hauntedukpodcast at hotmail.com with full details of your encounter, and I will try my best to read out as many listener stories as possible in dedicated listener episodes. I would genuinely love to hear from you, so please get in touch. Last of all, If you have a podcast that you need mixing, or if you need original music writing for your podcast, then please get in touch via email to pinkflamingo.musicproductions at hotmail.com. That's pinkflamingo.musicproductions at hotmail.com. This podcast was recorded at Pink Flamingo Music Production Studio in Helzowin in the West Midlands, England. Thank you so much again for listening and we'll be back very soon with another episode. Until then, stay safe and take care.